Hello, my name is Sam Smith, and this is Map of the Maze podcast from PepTalks, in which I'll be exploring a business theme related specifically to private equity backed and entrepreneurial companies. So welcome to our next episode of our podcast, Map of the Maze. We have Lars Pedersen, our founding member, join us today. Hello, Lars. Yep. Hi, Sam. Uh, Lars has um, a very interesting background. I think uh, you are the, our only founder member with a PhD in physics. And yep. it's a bit more than physics, isn't it? Yeah, so... Fiber uh, optics. Or yeah, exactly. So the, the specifics of it is uh, nonlinear fiber optic communication systems. Right which is about getting light through a fiber optic cable. Fascinating. <laughs> a subject I know nothing about. Well, and it's a few years ago, but uh, yes, that was the start of my uh, career, so to speak. Uh, I normally say that that was my first not quite real job, and then after that I had a real job. Uh, yes. How did you go from that to to where you are today maybe just give our listeners yeah, a, a so just brief very very background. quickly so um yeah so when i finished my phd back in 1995 um i was interviewing for a job actually based in copenhagen and um for a company uh, at that time called nettest during the uh, or during and after the interview um it became clear that there was another position with the same company in new york uh, that they wanted me to consider and then two weeks after I flew to New York, I visited the place there and then I said yes. And, so uh, your first job was in New York? So I've never worked in Denmark. Uh, <laughs> if, if a PhD is not work, yeah. which it really isn't, uh, then yes, I've never worked in Denmark. Um, and, um, and this first job was as a product manager. So what did NetTest do? Um, so NetTest now is Enrizo, but back then called NetTest and it was a, a test and management company selling uh, test equipment for fiber optic networks, but also for wireless networks, for land-wan testing, mm -hmm. uh, firewall testers, that kind of stuff. Um, but you were there for quite a while, weren't you? You sort of went through the yeah, ranks so, from product Yeah, managers. definitely. So, so started as, as a product manager there. I always say that one of the best learning grounds, if, if you want to start out, is product management. It was almost like a mini general manager. Uh, so you had to learn very quickly about finance, about sales, about marketing, about the product, and, and so on and so forth. So of course, I came with a very strong technical background, but then I had to learn about all the other stuff. What's your learning process then when you approach these so, new jobs and industries? So, so there's actually a very good book that describes it, which I read after I started doing it myself. It's called The First 90 Days. Uh -huh. uh, so I don't know if you're familiar with it. I have book. heard of the book. I haven't read it then. But it's actually a very, very good book. And and, uh, and it's, it's think of it as a 360-degree approach where early on you need to meet employees, you need to meet investors, you need to meet board, board members, you need to meet uh, market analysts, competitors, and so on. Just go all the way around. And it's all about getting enough in your head uh, so, so you get to a point where you have some perspective. To get to so that you approach, you, that's your approach now? To I, I do it always the same way. And so, so today I'm uh, CEO of, of uh, Question Mark. Uh, when I joined Question Mark in January of, of this year, um, it was the first time in this industry, it's the human capital management software yeah. industry. So joined in January and uh, in April launched a new vision for the company, which is really is a repositioning of, of, of some of the solutions. And it's about using uh, assessments to guide people on learning paths and then enable them to 
um, have better careers. But again, to get to that point required two months of intensive learning, mm -hmm. one month of bouncing a whole lot of really bad ideas off of people who knew a lot more about it than I did. And then from that process, a few ideas fell through, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that filter. Uh -huh. So the next role was with uh, Rayson. Rayson. Yeah. Yes. And it went very well. You, you sold that business. Yeah. So, so actually that business was sold after I left. Uh, okay. So, so uh, but yes, it was ultimately sold to, to Teldyne and is today a part of uh, Teldyne. And then you came to, instead of going back to Denmark, you thought you'd come and live in the UK. We thought maybe what would be quite interesting is you've got this fabulous experience of working extensively in the US and growing tech companies in the US. What did you learn there that you've brought here? So one way to look at that question is uh, learnings in terms of how to do business in the US. And another part of that question is taking the learning from the US and how do I apply them here? <laughs> you know, so, so if you sort of look at it from those two yeah. ways or those two angles, starting with the first, so, so I would say a lot of European uh, companies and Asian companies and basically companies from anywhere but the US, it's, there comes a time where they want to break into the US market, just given its uh, sheer size. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not easy. There are a couple of things that you need to be very careful about. So one is, um, don't do it. If you don't have a good product, just, uh, I would say, forget about it. D don't even try, because there has to be a reason, yeah. Product or service, or whatever your solution is, um, if it's not good, then you're not going to succeed. Uh, it's, it's really that simple. What do you mean by good? Um, do you mean world-class, beats everything in the market? Better, better than most of Better than everything that's in the market, well, most. Better than most of what's yeah. there. Not, not necessarily the very best, but better than most. Yeah. If, if your solution is not at that level, then you need very good salespeople to succeed. And as an example, if you're European, uh, company coming to the US, you're not going to get the best salespeople uh, because the best salespeople, they don't want to work for European companies, they want to work for American companies. <laughs> mm. And uh, and if you take a very good European salesperson and move him or her to the US, they're not going to succeed in most cases because of different cultures and, and so on and so forth. So, so I would say the first point is you have to clear a certain threshold in terms of how good your offering is. Second point is um, the US market, of course, is different. So you need, you have to be flexible in terms of the offering. Uh, there's always going to be some aspects of your solution or service that needs to be adapted to the local market. That's not a thing specifically to the US market, but of course that goes to for any market. Mm -hmm. If you're not willing to do that, then again, don't even go there in the first place. Uh, you're wasting your time. Um, and then I'd say that the third point in terms of breaking into the U.S. is um, is the sales setup in the U.S. is typically different than in Europe. So, so most European companies, when they grow uh, in main markets, they go direct. They sell direct to, to their customers. And then in um, markets where uh, revenue is below a certain threshold, they tend to sell through distributors. Now in the U.S., uh, that's a bit of a mixed model. It's the manufacturer's rep model. But technically, title may pass from company to end user, but there's a manufacturer's rep in the mix. Uh, so, so to really work in most market in the US, you need direct salespeople, but they have to work together with reps. Mm. 
Um, and, uh, and why does that work? Well, price level tends to be a little bit higher than at least in some markets. So, so there's enough margin uh, for both, you're paying both your own salesperson and the rep. Um, but, but again, if you have an offering where your margins are under pressure and so on, then don't go there in the first place. Again, back to, then you don't meet that threshold in, in going there in the first place. So I think those are the sort of the three key points in getting into the US mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and what tends to work. And, and the companies that uh, face those three challenges, they tend to succeed. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, I think that's the first part of the question. The second one, in terms of having lived there, worked there, and then come to Europe, probably a different sense of urgency than you see, certainly in, in Scandinavia. A different way of making decisions. Uh, how, how is it different? Well, for parts of Scandinavia, not all of Scandinavia, uh, parts of Scandinavia like to make consensus decisions, and they take time, and sometimes they don't get made. You just kind of park them, so that doesn't fly in the US. But then in the US, sometimes you make decisions too quickly. Uh, so, so it's about getting to the right mix. Uh, and what I try to do, like for instance, at Question Mark and also at uh, Critical, where I was before, is to make a consensus decision if it's possible. Because the good thing about consensus decisions is that when it's made, it tends to be implemented very quickly because everybody agreed to it. Okay. <laughs> you know, So that's the benefit of it. It may take longer to make it, but it's shorter to implement. Uh, if it's not possible to make a consensus decision, then of course you still have to make the decision. So what I've done in the last two companies I've been in is to have offsite sessions with the management teams. And then you meet every month or every quarter and then you just make decisions. You know, what are the decisions that are, what's the backlog yeah. in decisions? Make sure they get made. It, and it's a backlog of questions. It's not a, it's, they're not questions regarding strategic direction oh, no, in the future. It, 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 both. Uh, both, but, but typically what happens is that all companies, they have these very uncomfortable decisions that just don't get made yet yeah. because there's some sort of built-in conflict in them or, or if you decide one way or another way, some people will benefit, other people may not benefit and so on. And it's, it's difficult for organizations to make those kind of decisions, but they still have to be made. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, so I think that's probably the main thing I've taken with me from the US is to make sure that Consensus decisions are great, but we still have to make decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way I normally put that is that speed is more important than accuracy. Uh, and I keep saying that to my management team, that speed is more important than, than accuracy. Why? We have to move, yeah. Um, and there's so many companies that uh, have too much built-in inertia where it's very difficult for them to move due to internal politics between individuals, and which makes it very hard for them to make decisions and to move. And your world is moving so quickly, isn't it? It has to move. It As an industry, move. it's moving faster than and you have tech. To move. And you have to move faster than, you know, if you look out the window and you're not moving that fast, then you're not gaining, yeah? you're not creating value. So, so whatever context you're within, you have to move faster, at least as fast or faster than the context mm. you fit into. Um, and that's why it's so important. So. Very good example, um, at Critical, when I joined there, so, so Critical is a payments gateway. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it was sold in March of 2018 to NMI. So today it's a part of NMI, an American company based in, uh, in Chicago. Uh -huh. Recurring revenue was growing less than 10% when I joined. Probably the most effectful 
thing that was done was to change how we make decisions. So for instance, in that context, something called certifications is, is important for growth. Uh, so when you have a new payment solution, before you can go to market with it, it needs a certification from the acquirers or the processors, okay. otherwise you, you cannot go yeah. to market with it. Which of course means that the more certifications you do, the more your effective addressable market expands and the more your growth potential, of course, expands. When I joined, there was a very, very rigorous process for deciding when to do a certification and, and when not to do a certification, which led to, in most cases, not doing a certification. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked at that and then found out that the effective time, it took, not calendar time, but effective time it, it took to do one certification was about two weeks of one man's work. Mm. Uh, now, it could take three months, but a lot of waiting. Mm. Um, and uh, so basically I said, let's just do them all. Yeah. You know, you don't even have to decide. Just stack them up. Just do them all. <laughs> and uh, so more, with some modifications, but more or less just do them all. Mm. That led to an acceleration of the recurring revenue. And when we sold the company, it was growing by 34% uh, from when I started. Recurring about, revenue. Recurring revenue, yeah. And uh, from about 7 or 8% when I joined. When you were in the US, those businesses were also growing in, into other international markets, weren't they? So you have an expertise in taking a European business now into the US market. You've done that with all of your businesses from here. Yeah. From the US and now from here, you're taking them into other international markets, yes. which is obviously yes. a, <clears throat> a key foundation to pretty much every private equity value creation yeah. plan, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, but it's very difficult to do. It is. How, how do you approach it from with the experience that you've got? Uh, again, I talked about the US market before and what's specific about that and so on. But outside of the Europe is typically direct sales and, and that works well. Um, and then in other markets, it tends to be indirect sales through distributors. And I would say the, the key thing when you deal with uh, distributors like in China or India, where, wherever you may be, is that at the end of the day, it's really a, a mindshare game uh, because they tend, each of them tend to have five to eight principles that they work together with. So you're one of five to eight companies that they have an interface with. Mm. And, um, and of course, they have salespeople. And at the end of the day, your job is to get them to work for you and not the other four to seven companies. <laughs> and uh, uh, so it's sort of a, a built-in competition and um, I know it's, it's quite simple in, in my book it's really about seeing them um, because every time somebody from the company goes to see a distributor then before they go there's some activity going on planning meetings with customers and that kind of stuff they're working for you mm -hmm. not the other uh, four to seven and then when you're there of course they work for you and, and then a little bit after they also work for you so you need to go there like every three to six months. Somebody from the company has to go to each of them. And if you can't do that, then you have too many distributors. <laughs> you know, so it needs to be right-sized that way. Uh, otherwise they turn dormant and they work on the other uh, four to seven companies. Mm. So I think that, that uh, I know it's, it's very simple, but I think that's probably the, the key learning uh, in terms of how to do international sales. Mm -hmm. um, now, there are markets where it's very difficult to break in if you don't do an acquisition, uh, but that depends on sectors and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, that varies a lot between sectors. Let's go back to Credit Call. They, 
you were hired. You you alluded to it a second ago that you were you were hired post the private equity investment. Yeah. So the management team had engineered an MBO from the entrepreneur founder. Yes. You'd expect them to go on and you know successfully yeah. take it through the yes. first round of investment and to an exit, but yeah, yeah. But they had to go and find a new CEO. Yeah. Why, why yeah. was that? Yes, yeah, so, so, so it obviously wasn't growing at the rate. No, and, and, and actually that situation applies to the last three uh, positions mm-hmm. I've had as as a CEO of private equity owned companies, and so that so that's sort of normal in the sense that there's a reason why they make a change and. Um, and there's a reason why they, they pull somebody like me in, yeah. Yeah. What, what is that reason? So a lot of our a lot of our members are obviously they've engineered that buyout. Yes. Yes. You know, and they're trying to build confidence in themselves and the relationship yeah. with yeah, investors. Yeah. So what what well, leads to a change? Do you think whether it's fair or not fair? Uh, the situation that typically is the case when I step in, there is is a situation of a disconnect between the owners and the management team, and again. It may not be fair, but it's just the situation. Yeah. And uh, so I would say for best advice for um, anybody who's doing an MBO uh, is don't underestimate how much time you need to spend just managing that relationship with the, your owner, basically. Yeah. But what do you think led to that disconnect? Was it they didn't set themselves up with strategic alignment immediately post investment was it, was that the reason for so, discount? So, was it because they didn't talk to each other enough was it so so, so obviously uh, i was not around so some of it I, I have to speculate a little bit but i would say in most cases it's it's the usual you know you want to under promise or deliver yeah and mm. uh, and if you don't under promise or deliver uh, then there comes a the time typically the first year is okay Mm-hmm. And then getting into the second year, yeah, the investors they start getting a little bit antsy because it didn't quite work out the first year. Yeah, um, which also means that most times when I come in, it's actually two years after the investment happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that serve as a warning, but uh, but that is the time where you you want to solidify the relationship. Is the management equity underwater at that point? By the time of your arrival, in some cases, yeah. So you're having yeah. to re you're having yeah, to negotiate a recast of the management yeah. equity in some cases. for yourself and for them yeah, yeah, yeah. as you come into the business. Yeah. It, it, very different situations between the three, but in some cases, yes. And some investors are, act very differently relative to management teams than others. Some are much more management team friendly than mm-hmm. others. Uh, like for instance, some put in three times liquidation preferences when they put money in, which means that when the company is sold, then whatever money they put in, three times that money has to come off the top before, before anybody else gets anything. Yeah. And uh, which is the most extreme I've seen. Um, and uh, whereas others are a lot more friendly than that. So as you're, as you're growing your business credit call, how are you preparing your team to get to the position of you know, readying the business for an exit? I'm looking at this from an outsider perspective, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. you know, you've got you've got your sales and marketing function, you've got yes. your operational platform, your ops director. If if those functions aren't really well set up, yeah, yeah, yeah. commercial due, due diligence yes. is going to come in and yes. devalue the business, yes. isn't it? No, absolutely. That's the game. So yes. Yes. how far out do you start really sort of preparing the business with process, system, control? So I started that day one. Because you need to do that anyway, yeah. Yeah. From an operational point of view, so, so are you constantly thinking to yourself, does this stand up to robust? I always think about people, processes, and tools, mm-hmm. and and between those three, across the value chain, do we need to change anything? 
So right now... But with the exit in mind, not just uh, with the daily operation of the business, but, but with... The, 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 the two are sort of tied together because if, if you do it from an operational point of view, you will be ready for the exit. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. so I normally just focus in on the on the operational aspect and and by clearing off that list of to-dos, <laughs> then by time, and that's part of how you assess whether you're ready for the exit is when you're done with that list. Then say, okay, now we are, we are ready to go to market. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one of the key criteria to determine whether you are ready uh, or not. So, uh, and of course, a part of that uh, in terms of tools is that you then have data that you can use to tell a story. Um, and uh, so you need to tell a compelling story about how, how does revenue happen? How does profit happen? And you need to be able to pull all that together to tell a compelling story. That's absolutely crucial to getting a high exit valuation. The other thing, which is maybe even more important, is that you have a vision for the company that extends the timeline of the exit. So it's a part of the, it's, it has to be a vision where the hero in the story is the buyer mm. and, uh, or the acquiring company. And, um, and it has to be a story where the timeline is such that a part of that epic where the hero plays that story out, in this case being the acquirer of the business, uh, that they do a part of the story themselves. So We were talking earlier before we got started and you were talking about the importance of the people, not, not so much the senior management team. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if they stay, great. Yes. Yes. But the people below. Uh, I've been in a million different contexts there, but, yeah. but at least a few contexts um, in as much as I've held C-level positions now in was that six different private equity or VC-owned companies? Mm -hmm. And I would say in all those cases where there was an exit, most of the management team, after about 18 months, were gone. Mm -hmm. This uh, is to trade, really? This is... Well, yeah, to a trade by, yes. Whatever exactly. the ownership of the trade is, but it's a trade acquisition. Yes, yeah. but but actually one of them was to a private equity fund and the same thing happened, which is, uh, which is interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you sell a company... Well, first of all, you need to be aware of that. And, and typically the, the smart buyer is also aware of that. So you need to have a very strong management team. It's very important, but it's almost more important to have a very strong team underneath the yeah. exact team because, and by the way, that, that's something like when I sell a company, I, I tend to always tell the entire company that it's going on because they, they know anyway that something is going on um, and then try to update uh, as much as you can, of course, you can give all details to all the employees and so on. But I, I uh, try to update all of the company that is going on. Mm. And quite often, a part of uh, companies will feel some anxiety around this um, because it's a big change and all that. And I always tell them that you're the constant, I'm the variable. Um, and you need to have a compensation structure and so on that motivates people to step into that unknown that may include you shifting to something else yeah how much i mean it sounds like you do do this you are coaching them you're teaching them you're showing them where you create the value how yes. you create the value yes. and what what the pathway once you've gone and maybe other members of the management team yes. have gone yes that they they can deliver yes yeah yeah no no that's, that's great for them isn't it i mean that's that's yeah, that's well, career making for them well, that, that's sort of three three things to it yeah um as a management team one is in some cases they can make money yeah of course, depending on how successful the exit is, uh, in some cases, quite a lot of money. But the two other things is uh, it looks good on the CV yeah. uh, that you've done a thing like that and and 
taking a part in it and then um, and then of course that's the learning you know whatever you learn from it and, and because context yes they're different but it's probably 80 percent the same and 20 percent different so when you step into a new context chances are 80 percent is going to be very similar <laughs> as, as, as a ceo who's done it four times mp where, where do you where do you spend most of your time so obviously you've dissected every element of the value creation process mm -hmm. and you know the, the private equity investment process so having done it um that many times where do you really concentrate your efforts now how would you break up your your day your typical week so so, so again it, it very much depends on on where you're at on the journey so mm -hmm. so let's say it's, it's post the initial learning it's post having verbalized the, the new vision um and there it's, it's really about looking at the value chain and then figuring out where the pinch points are and where the issues are. So, so it's very important to have, to know what good looks like. So what I mean by that is, uh, for instance, in, in Credical, we had from opportunity through to deal, uh, we had a success rate of about 50%, which is great, but is that good? Should it have been 75% or? Mm. Or what? Or, or should it be forty percent? But then do more deals, <laughs> you know. So it's that it's, it's to answer those kind of questions. Yeah. Good news is that um, there's a lot of material on the internet. Uh, there's lots of reports being um, published with uh, benchmark studies, and um, and I tr I try to pick up on a, a lot of them. So so just to answer my own question from before, fifty percent is good. The average is about thirty percent, you know. So in that company, okay, that's that's okay. So let's get more through the pipe. Mm. The conversion rates are, are fine, so let's focus on volume. Mm. You know, otherwise, you, you would then say, well, actually, we need to improve conversion. In question mark, it's the other way around. We need to improve conversion before we increase the volume. So right now, we are, we are working on improving conversion, and how we're doing that is by really focusing in on how do we do better demos. And, and why did we get to that point? Well, it's because I looked at the data and said, well, that's where the gap is <laughs> from a benchmark study. Um, so, so I guess the answer to the question is you're constantly looking at yes. the data. and that, No, that's my approach. Yeah. I'm, so I'm not saying that other CEOs should do yeah, it that way, but, but, I, but I'm suggesting that if they don't do it themselves, get, get somebody who does it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, hire some a business analyst or that yeah. does it for so, them. Because so it's, they, it's, it's the data points from sales marketing from operations yes. from development yes. and then as you move through the cycle you're then moving from internally focused data yes. to externally yes. data focused yes. to how do we and it's how all do we come out of this how do we exit this it's how quickly you make it through it's how much make it through you know so so it's the flow flow in both in terms of volume how yeah. much it is and velocity <laughs> so i call that value chain flow yeah uh, and uh, and again you you, you can calculate it which is, so it really is like designing a machine. Mm. Um, so, so again, it, it, I, I know I, I tend to be crazy when it comes to numbers, so I'm not suggesting that everybody does it this way, but, but I think really get a business analyst who can do it. There's yeah. so much growth that can be unlocked in optimizing these kind of things. Uh -huh. Okay, Lars, that's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Yep. We, we could carry on talking, couldn't we? <laughs> yes. Let's leave it there. Um, thank you. You can download our podcast series from all the usual podcast places. Or do go and subscribe to the show. 
We'll be back with another interview next month. But for now, goodbye and thank you for listening.